The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Well, thank you so much, Josh. It is great to be with all of you today. Uh, Before I jump into this message, I think we really need to address the elephant in the room. And it's been happening since we moved over here to Mountain View. I've, I've heard as we gather, people say it one way, people say things another, and I, I think we really just need to clear the air. So is it good afternoon or is it good evening? I think we've established that it's not good morning, that we know that's kind of a slip, and yet pretty much all of us at one point or another have done that, if not multiple times. But I hear the various elders, staff, speakers come up, and for some it's afternoon, and for some it's evening. And so I want to try to just lay this to rest by a show of hands. Could we see how many of you would say 4 o'clock, 4.30 is good afternoon? Could we just see, okay, my people, thank you. And, And how many of you would say, this feels like a good evening kind of time? Good evening. Okay, still quite a few. Um, how many of you really don't care and aren't going to raise your hand no matter what I say? Okay, we got a few of those, so crowd participation. Uh, Isn't it interesting that when there is no standard by which we can measure or determine whether something is accurate or not, all of us will instinctively just create our own measurement, probably coming from our family of origin, the context we grew up in, maybe what we saw Uh, our parents or family members do, and without even thinking about it, when you walk in at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, something intuitively in you will just say, this is afternoon, good afternoon, and something in others will say, good evening, and yet most of us also still say, good morning. So we'll figure it out one way or another. But but we have this lens in life, don't we? Uh, One of my favorite activities or, you know, probably the main activity in my life outside of my work and family is uh, to run. I'm a long-distance runner and developed that uh, in my college days. And it's been interesting to me uh, what people will consider a long run. For some people, a long run is a mile. Anything over five minutes is a long run. Uh, For me, the definition of a long run starts in the double digits, 10 miles and above. Now I would call that a long run. And when I say that to other people, they will say, no, that's not a long run, that's a mental problem. Or that's something crazy. Like, it's, it's all about your perspective on what kind of activities did you do as a kid? Do you enjoy running? Uh, have you ever done a longer race? Like, it's all kind of subsequent or dependent on something that can be very arbitrary from my own experience. Now, what's amazing is that not only do we do this in a lot of topics where there is no set standard, we will do the same kind of thing in areas where there is a set standard. For example, let me ask you to consider this question. What is the proper speed to drive on the freeway? Now, some of you say the speed limit is 70. You drive 70 miles or perhaps a couple of miles below so as not to exceed the speed limit. 
and God bless your cautious, law-abiding heart. For others of us in the room, we would say, well, you know, 70 is a good idea. It's, it's kind of a guideline. You want to stay pretty close to that and, you know, definitely not go under it because that, you know, clogs up the road and gets in everyone's way. But, you know, just kind of keep it close to 70. Ballpark it, right? And then there are a few others of you that if you were honest, and, and don't worry, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on this one. But if you were honest, you'd say 70 is only the speed limit if you get caught. Anything it goes so long as it feels safe or appropriate to you. So it's interesting or unique, isn't it, that when we're driving down the road, we will tend to view anyone who's zipping past us in the left lane as a crazy driver and anyone driving much slower than us in the right lane as an idiot. And, and who is, in that scenario, who is the standard? Is it the speed limit? No, it's, it's usually us. It's me, it's whatever I have determined is the right speed, and I judge or determine other people's decisions based on my understanding and interpretation. I see the same thing happening frequently at the grocery store. You know, you've got the self-checkout or the speed checkout lanes that will say 15 items or less, and I've actually seen people stand there looking at their cart and they're counting, which I, I find remarkable that they would do that. And then other people, they just boldly cruise right in there with a shopping cart clearly uh, overflowing with far more than 15 items. So even when there is a standard, even when there is perhaps a law or a guideline that's been established, we will still set ourselves up as the interpretation or the, uh, the lens through which we determine what's appropriate or not. Now, that's one thing when we're talking about 15 items at the grocery store or the number of miles that someone might choose to run. But what about when we're talking about the lens that we use to view our world? The lens that we use to view faith and God and the Bible and things that really truly matter because as we're going to see this afternoon, our lens can actually be a matter of life or death. And so look at this passage this evening in Luke chapter 16, what at first glance, may seem to be kind of a discombobulated collection of sayings. In fact, in a few of the translations I looked at in preparation for this, uh, some places even towards the end of the verses that Josh read say other teachings or collected ideas. It's like we don't really know what to do with them or how it connects, so we just kind of tacked them on here. But I don't think that's actually what Luke was trying to write here. I don't think that's what Jesus was doing And through this uh, perspective, I hope that by the end you'll see as well, there is a method to what Jesus is saying here. And to get at that method, we actually need to backtrack one verse to where Pastor Josh ended with us last week in reading verse 13 about uh, that no one can serve two masters. So just to remind us of those verses, uh, that verse, it says, no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Now that word uh, ridiculed is a little vague in its actual meaning. A lot of translations say sneered, or jeered, or scoffed. Whatever they did, it's evident that when Jesus spoke these words about money and serving only God or money, something in them created a visible, audible response that it was clear to everybody they disagreed with what Jesus was saying. Now, why is that? As as Josh pointed out last week, 
there is a choice to be made, much like we can't have two favorite restaurants, two favorite football teams, that when they play each other, we'll find I'm going to choose one or the other. I, I can't attend two restaurants simultaneously, so I have to make a choice. And, and yes, it's a choice, but I would also add to that that once the choice is made, what Jesus' hearers in this first century context would have quickly recognized is it's also a logical impossibility. They lived in a century where masters and slaves, masters and servants was very, very common. And when someone was your master, you didn't get any more choices. Like, that's my master, and if they say it, I go and do it. And so masters and slaves had this kind of unbreakable relationship that anyone listening would have said, well, of course. If you've chosen this master, and and they may not have always had the choice in in the context of the hearers, but if this is your master, you will do what that master says, and you are typically not free to just go to a different master. And so Jesus is elevating this sense that, that you're either serving God or you're serving money. And what we see as as the Pharisees respond with their ridicule or scoffing or sneering or whatever it is exactly they did, I I kind of imagine like just a really elaborate eye roll and a a kind of snort, what's he talking about? There was something in them that loved both God or at least what they interpreted as being obedience to God and the money that they were gaining from being esteemed teachers of the law and rabbis Uh, in that day and age, that they were kind of trying to play both sides, and it had created for them a lens through which they were hearing what Jesus had to say, that lens that led them to actually scoff or ridicule the words of Jesus. And what I want to point out for all of us as we get into this passage is that we all have a lens, that we all come to Jesus with a lens, that that there are things in our life that have become important to us that then influence the way that we hear things that are said. Now, we might want to dismiss the big bad Pharisees like, oh, yeah, I would never love money like them. I would never make that too important in my life. I mean, I'm not rich and wealthy and profiting off, you know, preaching the word of God. But are there ways in which we have allowed other things to have a master kind of relationship with us? That because we like it so much, we lean towards it, it might be things for us like our wealth. It it could be our comfort. Being comfortable can be a kind of master that that I I like to be comfortable. I don't like things that are painful or difficult or, or cause me discomfort. And so through that lens, I will hear things. Well, of course, Jesus doesn't want me to be uncomfortable, so... I begin to hear through the lens of my comfort. Could be control, wanting to be able to manage outcomes or relationships or what happens around me so that nothing out of my control can ever happen to me. Our lens could be our race, our nationality, our job status, our marriage status. Uh, We live in a day and age where the, the marriage status of being married in by and large, I'd say, is elevated far above being single in our culture. And so if we're married and in that marriage status, we will hear the Bible preached a certain way versus if we're single, we might see that as a status that's less desirable, even if we don't find it in God's word. Uh, Here's a lens, you know, if you're disagreeing with me that I don't think I have a lens, here's one that I think we may all have if we grew up anywhere in the Western Hemisphere or in particular in America. 
that something in us just naturally assumes that, well, I, I deserve to have a decent income, to be able to live in a decent house, to drive a decent car, to have a few decent possessions. I mean, oh, sure, I don't need a mansion, a Corvette. I don't need the finest in bed, but, but it's only right, right, that I have a decent house and car. And that's a lens that for many of us was just how we grew up in the American spirit and the American dream. Like, that's the right way to live. That's a proper expectation. And we bring that lens to what Jesus says. We need to recognize, though, that if we grew up in Africa or many parts of Asia or the world in general, that would not be our lens. We wouldn't hear the words of Jesus through that lens. And, and that leads into why this is so important that we recognize we have a lens. Actually, first let me say, if one of the, the sure ways to know if we're being influenced by our lens is if we think we don't have one, right? If you've ever had a conversation with a teenager in your life and uh, they roll their eyes at you, you might say to them, don't roll your eyes at me. And what will their frequent response be? I didn't roll my eyes at you. Like, yes, you did. I watched it happen, but, but it's kind of intuitive in them. Of They're just responding to words you said and not aware that they did it that can kind of be our response to being told we have a lens, that we have a way of seeing things. Like, well, oh, no, I don't. If, if we don't think we have a lens, we're essentially saying I somehow grew up in a void or a vacuum where nothing else influenced me outside of what I see in the Word of God. And as wonderful as that idea might be, it's simply not possible. You grew up in a culture, you grew up in a family, you grew up in relationship systems that have influenced and created for all of us a lens. And here's why that, that lens matters so much. Look at what Jesus says next in our passage to these Pharisees. He turns back to them, or he continues with them as they have scoffed or ridiculed or eye-rolled or whatever they did. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So here what Jesus is saying to them is, is essentially because of your love of money, because of your attempt to both serve God and to serve money, you are now living in such a way that, that your reputation among society, the way that you appear to men and women has become more important to you than what's actually going on on the inside. And in, in fact, that's the confrontation that we've been seeing between Jesus and the Pharisees throughout the book of Luke. You know, Jesus doesn't wash his hands, and so they criticize him because he should do the ceremonial hand washing, and Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and they criticize him because, well, he shouldn't heal on the Sabbath. And there are all these laws that they're kind of puffed up about themselves because, well, look, we follow these, and Jesus, you don't, so we're in the right and you're in the wrong. But Jesus very accurately points out that what's so important to them is the way they look to other people. That they look like people that really follow God's law and they get esteem and they get praise and, and what's more important to them than their devotion to God is their reputation among society. And Jesus says about that, he, he says what's exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. What I think we need to see here is how strong the word abomination is. It's like in other places, it's called detestable. Uh, it's linked to idolatry. It, it's a pretty extreme way of saying that, that God looks at it and judges it as being unholy and detestable. And, 
And so think of that in context. That Jesus isn't just saying to these Pharisees, well, well, you've got some things in your life that you think are pretty good and God thinks they're not so good. It's much more extreme than that. He says, you're actually living in such a way that what you call good, God calls evil. And that's why the lens that we bring to our faith is so important because the second idea is this, that our lens is a filter. Our lens is a filter through which we determine what is the right way to act, live, and behave in this world. And so as things come in and ideas, our filter will dictate which way we go. And we may actually be in danger if we're not recognizing our lens. We may actually be in danger of calling things good that God has said are evil. Not just that, oh, I, I do things that are okay and God says they're kind of not okay. Or, or I think it's great and God says, no, those things are just good. No, there are things I may call good that God calls evil. And if we don't recognize our lens, we're probably doing it without thinking about it. I was considering a couple of ways this week that I see happening in the church in America. And I, I, I don't mean this in any way as a criticism on the church in general because I love the church and we're a part of it. But it's just things I see kind of characteristically happening that could be examples of where our filter has created ways in which we call things good or acceptable that God has called evil. I, I think it's probably clear to everyone in the room by this point that we live in a very sex-saturated culture where pornography and sexual brokenness are impacting probably every person in some way, but in our personal lives, many of us have found that behavior or behaviors coming into our life. And words that we'll use or that we'll hear even among Christians is thoughts like, well, it's, it's really not that big of a deal Everyone does it. It's just a, a thorn to carry, and it's, it's really no one's being hurt, so let's just kind of call that one okay. That's a filter that many are carrying. Now, now, the lens that's leading to that filter is a lens perhaps of addiction, a lens where someone has tried to stop, and in their inability to stop, they're trying to figure out the behavior, and so it's easy to call something okay that God calls evil. And we need to be willing to live in attention even if we're struggling with those behaviors because that's a place I lived for 15 years of not understanding why I continued to do things I detested but also trying to figure out a way to live with myself. And so hearing my own voice in my head saying, well, it's, it's not that big of a deal. That'll be the last time. It'll get better. But it's a filter through which I'm trying to rationalize or normalize something that God has called wicked, evil, or even perverse. Another area that I see is, is happening uh, with, I think, the deterioration of marriage in churches. We hear a lot of people say, well, God wants me to be happy, right? God just wants me to live a fulfilled life, or this will be better for the kids. And so we place our happiness or the happiness of others ahead or above the word of God. And, and I, I think just, you know, there are valid reasons and good reasons why divorces happen. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But when it, even when it does the breakdown of a marriage, the, the two who become one, that God has made one, it grieves his heart. And so we want to be careful not to try to call good or okay something that God has called painful and evil and in many cases sinful. I think another way we're maybe seeing some of this, we're calling something good that God has called evil. There's a thought pattern among many Christians today that says that all roads ultimately lead to God. You know, as long as you're sincere, 
You know, as long as you're really doing your best to follow any kind of belief system, if you're just trying to be a good person, you know, in the end, God will kind of sort it all out and, and, and we'll all be good. And honestly, I think that's a wonderful idea that I hope would be true, but I don't see it in God's word. You know, when Jesus talked about other prophets that came before him that, that led people in a different way or claimed to be the Messiah, he didn't say, well, they were, they were good people with good intentions and those who followed them were okay. No, he said, all who came before me were thieves and robbers. And in fact, they were under the one who came to steal, kill, and destroy. I'm the one alone who brings life and is the way to the Father. He was pretty clear about being this good way and that anyone else was not. But what can happen when we bring that lens is it becomes a filter. And in our filter, we may find that we live in ways that are contrary to what God calls us to. And so Jesus continues to play out with these Pharisees why that matters so much. Look at verse 16. He says, Until John the Baptist began to preach the law of Moses and the messages, sorry, wrong translation, that's the one. uh, Let's read the one on the screen. He says, The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? I think what he's getting at here in light of his message to these Pharisees is that up until John the Baptist, who began to preach this idea of that people needed to repent and believe because the kingdom of God was at hand and the one who would usher in the kingdom of God was on his way, whose sandals John was not worthy to stoop down and untie. At that moment, things began to change. But Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, up until that time, you've You've just relied on the law and the prophets. Those have been your guides. That's that's what's been leading you. And now that something new has come, you're still holding on to that old way. But others, as Jesus says, others have discovered it. They're, They're forcing their way in. And what I think Jesus is getting at there is the number of people who are embracing faith in Jesus readily that the rest of that Jewish religious society would have looked down on and said, no, they don't belong. The sinners the tax collectors, people that the society had said were no good, were, were moving into the kingdom despite maybe the, the, the rules or the laws or the resistance that a Jewish society should have said, well, you have no part of this. They, they forced their way in. They were jumping in with both feet because they saw something that was life-giving and they said, man, we are all in and yet the Pharisees were rejecting it. Because their filter had so dictated the way they saw the world, they weren't able to embrace this new kingdom. It didn't make sense to them. It didn't fit into their filter. And it leads us to the the third idea that I see in this passage. It's that holding on to our filter can actually cause us to miss out. That if we hold on to our filter, we may miss out on the good things that Jesus is inviting us into. And I don't just mean on an eternal scale. I'm not trying to make a comment about eternal salvation and, uh, you know, how all that works out. Although if you come back next week, you'll hear that there is even that danger that we could so hold on to our filter that in eternity, we may end up in a place very different than we expected. But I'm getting into next week's passage. For this week, I think what Jesus is pointing out is he's come to give people life. And he wasn't just saying, well, one day when you die and go to heaven, then that new life will start. Like, he was inviting people into a new life now, and he's saying to these Pharisees, you're still being guided by this old way that you can't see this wonderful new way that has come for you. 
you know, uh, many times uh, in our family's story, we've tried to take our kids out to do fun things. Maybe to go mini golfing, maybe to go bowling, to do a family hike or a family picnic. And I don't know how it works in your family, but when you have four kids, depending on the day, there's often one of them that's just not having it, right? That like, that's not what they wanted to do that day, or they're not a big fan of bowling, or they don't really want to go mini golfing because they wanted to go bowling and we chose mini golf instead. And so one of our kids very often, and, and all my kids right now are thinking, I think we all get a milkshake out of this because if I use any of my kids in a sermon illustration, they get a milkshake. And so since I'm referring to all of them, they're probably all really excited right now. Uh, anyway, that's not part of the story. When, when they have that attitude, it can be really frustrating to my wife and I. And, and we'll have conversations about it. And what frustrates us is not that we think like bowling is the greatest thing in the world that our kids must experience, right? It's, or it's not like that unless they become a world-class mini-golfer, we have failed at parent, as, as parents. No, what, what bothers us is we can see a mindset they're bringing to the day that we just know if, if they would just choose to go along with it and decide to have fun, what would happen? They would have fun. They would enjoy it. It's going to be an enjoyable day if they will see it that way. And that is in just a very small microcosm of a way, I think a piece of what Jesus is saying is like, there is a mindset you have here about what it means to follow the law of God and to look good in front of people. And because you're so stuck in that way of seeing this world, you can't see all of the joy and the goodness and the beauty that you're missing out on. Others are forcing their way in. Others are jumping in with both feet and it's changing their lives, but something is holding you back. And I think he kind of doubles down on that in the next two verses, which I think are connected. If you don't think after my sermon that those two verses are really connected, that's fine. But, but here's the connection I see. Look at verse 17. He says, But it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So why does Jesus go here? You see, I think part of the Pharisees' filter or lens is this yeah, but that they're hearing in their head as Jesus talks. And what they're hearing is, yeah, but you don't really follow the law of God and we do. We've got it right. We have all these laws that we follow. We're the experts and you are not following it. And so as he's speaking like, yeah, but, but you're, just, you know, you're just getting rid of the law of God. You're just saying it doesn't matter anymore. You're throwing it out the window. And so we can't trust you. We don't have to follow you. And so Jesus is clarifying. He's saying, no, actually, I've come to build on the law. I've come to make the law more real and personal and fulfill the law. I'm not getting rid of it. I'm helping it be defined in who I am and the way that, that I explain it and live it out. So it's not that it's disappearing. It's, it's actually being strengthened by what I'm teaching. And then Jesus gives the example of divorce and remarriage. And in several translations, they actually add some language there to set that up. They'll say, for example, everyone who, and then they'll quote verse 18. Well, why does Jesus go to the divorce and remarriage idea? I think it's really helpful to consider the conversation that Jesus has with Pharisees in some other places, like in Matthew chapter 19, which may actually be another side of the same conversation just written from Matthew's perspective, 
or very likely is a similar conversation happening with the same crowd on another day. But in Matthew 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, like, Jesus, why did Moses say that a man could, you know, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And they show that in their question, they reveal their lens. Because in Jerusalem at that time, there was a major uh, group of rabbis called the House of Hillel. A real quick history lesson, trust me, it's not going to be long, so just stick with me. Hillel, in the first century BC, probably 50 to 100 years before Jesus, was a very, very popular Jewish rabbi and teacher. And he had interpreted the law of God in such a way, based off of some of the things that Moses had said, that he had continued to interpret and rewrite and reinterpret the law of God until he got to the point that said, a Jewish man may divorce his wife for just about any reason if she displeases him, including, and this is in his writings, you could go look it up if you'd like, including if she burns his supper. That if she burns his meal, he may write her a letter of divorce and send her away. And you can kind of hear that in the Pharisees in Matthew 19 say, so why is it that can a man divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus, very interestingly, in Matthew 19 goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. A book that, by the way, all Jewish boys, from what I understand in the first century, would have memorized by the time they were in the fifth grade. The first five books of the Bible were just a normal part of their education and memorizing it because they didn't all have books was a part of what they did. So he goes all the way back into that and says, you know what is written, that a man leaves his father and mother and the two become one flesh and what God has joined together, let no one separate. What's interesting is the Pharisees in Matthew 19 are actually quoting from Deuteronomy 24, which if you have time to go read Deuteronomy 24, isn't even what Deuteronomy 24 is saying. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses is saying, suppose a man writes a letter of divorce and sends his wife away, then he goes on to give some laws about what would it mean to be remarried or for someone to remarry her. The actual writing the letter and sender is just an assumed part of an illustration from which these Jews have actually built, these Pharisees have built an entire uh, belief system around what's acceptable within Jewish marriage. And what I think Jesus is doing here is he's actually pointing out to them that not only is your lens causing you to miss me, the lens you're using to interpret is actually causing you to miss the word of God as well. Because you're not actually following either. What you're following is your own interpretation of what you think is best and you're missing out on everything. And I believe in this passage, what Jesus is inviting them into is a new way of seeing and inviting us into is a new way of seeing to recognize that we have a lens and that that lens has become a filter to which we see the world and our wealth or our comfort or control or things that we hold dear to us actually cause us to not be able to embrace a new kingdom that Jesus is inviting us into. And to me, that's the, the point and the connection of these four or five relatively short verses is that Jesus is inviting us to take off our lens in order to embrace his view of this life. He's invited people into a life that is full. John chapter 10, he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, to abundance. Like like there's life in me now, but... If it's your filter through which you try to run it all through, you're going to miss out not only on me, but you're probably missing out on the word of God as well. 
because you're just doing it your way. So hopefully this leads us to kind of ask the question, well, if we're to take off our lens and embrace his view, what is this new lens? Which really what I see Jesus saying here is Jesus saying, I'm the lens. I'm now the lens of how you interpret these Old Testament passages. I'm the lens that will show you who God really is. I'm the lens that will reveal to you what it is to have a covenant love uh, to a people. And I'm the lens through which this world and life makes sense. And Jesus is saying to these Pharisees and he's saying to us today, if you can't get past your own lens, you're likely going to miss out on me. We see this in Colossians chapter 3 when the Apostle Paul is writing to the church there. And in verse 11, he says, Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ is all. Now what, what Paul does in that little verse is he takes some of the primary lenses that people in the first century had. Am I a man or a woman? Am I slave or free? Am I Jewish or non-Jewish? Like, am I a refined believer or am I this barbarian that lives differently? Like, that's how people understood themselves. And Paul looks at all of those and he, he doesn't say that men and women cease to exist. He's not going to say that, you know, all these things just disappear, but, but he's saying in light of who Christ is, that's the lens. Christ is all. And he's saying to them, if I look at you and I see first male or female, slave or free, Jew or non-Jew, then I've missed the point of Christ coming. What I see first is Christ in you relating to Christ in me. And from that point, we can then begin to discuss the differences we might have in all those other categories of life. But the lens for us becomes Jesus. He's inviting the Pharisees and he's inviting us to take off our lens in order to embrace his view of this life. So what would it look like to do that? What would it look like to, to take off our lens in order to embrace Jesus as the lens? I want to give you three kind of take-it-home ideas as I wrap up this afternoon. Uh, first, I think the first way we take off our lens, we've got to repent. To repent. Now, when we say the word repent, what often comes to mind for us is saying we're sorry for bad things we've done or bad choices we've made. But actually, that concept of the word repent would have been a little foreign to the first century hearers when they heard John the Baptist and Jesus calling people to repentance. Because what, what they were calling people to was to turn from the way they'd been doing life in order to embrace the new and coming kingdom of God. And yes, that included in a small way repenting of the bad things they had done, but John the Baptist and Jesus in their call believed and understood they were calling people to a whole lot more than just saying sorry for bad things they'd done. They were inviting people into a new way of seeing the world. And that's what it is for you and I to repent. Something that, yes, happens in a moment in time when we first maybe make that choice to walk with Jesus, but something I believe that becomes a daily need in our lives. To be willing to look at the lenses that I hold on to to be able to recognize the filters that have dictated how I read God's word and say, Lord, I recognize I've, I've been living for my wealth or my comfort or, or just my control. I, I want to repent. I want to turn from that and embrace a kingdom the way that you see it. It's not just about did you lie, steal, or cheat. It's, 
It's are we living into our way of seeing the world and can we turn from it? Because that's ultimately what it is to repent. And I'm not saying in any way that's to, you know, get rid of sin or say sin doesn't matter. It does. But repentance is much larger than just identifying the sin. It's identifying all of the ways in which we are living into our own kingdom and not the kingdom of God. Second way that we can take this home, I think, is to spend time with Jesus. And and I know that sounds a little bit like every sermon could end with, so read your Bible and pray more. But let me unpack a little bit what I mean by this. You know, every summer, my wife and I and our family take a trip back to Minnesota because we both have a lot of family that live in Minnesota. And we spend a good two or three weeks there. And we will both notice that the longer we're in Minnesota, the more a little bit of Minnesotan will start to make its way out in our vocabulary. That there's something about the way we'll say the word sure, that you kind of start to hold on to the you. And it's like, oh, that sounds just like the way my sister says it, sure. You know, we might not get all the way to, you know, the the oat and a boat because that's more of a Canadian thing. But we definitely hear the dialect of our family coming out. Well, why is that? Well, because it's human nature that the people that you spend the most time around influence the way you do life as well. It's actually the way your brain is wired and designed that, that wherever you spend the most time is shaping you. That's why we spend time with Jesus. It's not just so that we can mark off a box on the counter and say, oh, did that today. It's not just so that we can study the word to understand what it means and parse the Greek and make sure we've got our theology in order, all those those things can have their place. But it's so that we can sit and push other things aside and say, Jesus, I just want to be with you so that I start to see the world the way you see the world. And I want the way that you see the world and the way you see me to become the way I see me. Because I don't really know how to do this on my own, so Jesus, would you show me? Would, would you lead me into that? And the more we spend time with him, the more we're shaped, and we might find that, that out of our mouths and out of our hearts, we'll start to slip a little more of a Christ-centered way of seeing the world and seeing our lives because we've been with Jesus. And then the third uh, take at home I'd give this afternoon is I think we need to spend time with people whose lens is different than ours to spend time with people whose lens is different than yours. And I think that's important because when we spend time with people who are from a different socioeconomic status, a different culture, a different race, a different perspective, a different theological viewpoint, what it can do is help expose our own lens. Because the thing about the lenses for all of us, the reason they're a lens is because they just make sense to us. And until we're confronted by someone else that sees it differently, it can be hard to see. Now, if, if that means being around people who aren't following Christ, we have to have, I think, some level of discernment of at what point maybe are they influencing me to think the way they do. But even there, we're just learning how do other people see this world? Because then I can bring that new perspective into my faith and say, God, as I've seen more of my lens and what I hold on to, I can lay it down. I can turn. I can repent of it and follow after you. In in many ways, what we're acknowledging about our lens, because this is hard, what we're acknowledging is a sense of some self-blindness. It's a humbling place to come before God and say, Lord, I, I see things that make sense to me, but when it really comes to understanding your way of life, I, I feel kind of blind. And the good news about that is if we can come to God and acknowledge some blindness, 
is to think about the way that Jesus interacted with people who were blind. You know, when people came to Jesus that were blind, he didn't condemn them for being blind. He didn't shame them for their blindness or say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you seeing? That when blind people encountered Jesus, he often asked them, do you want to see? Which feels like a really strange question to ask a blind person because it's like, (laughs) well, I'm here. But I think when Jesus asks that, what he's saying is, are you willing to change the way you've done life? Are you willing to become a different kind of person? Because giving you your sight is going to change a lot in your world. Do you want this? And I think that's what Jesus asks of you and I. Do you want to see? Are you willing to lay down the lens and the filter that have so often dictated the way you do life and the decisions you make in order to embrace something new because it will change your world? Do you want to see? And so I want to close by teaching you a prayer that I've borrowed from Andy Stanley, and I know there may be differing opinions on what some think of him as a writer or pastor or author, but one of the things I have appreciated about Andy Stanley is his ability to take complicated things and say them in a very simple way. And I heard a prayer that he used in a sermon series that went essentially like this. He said, Lord Jesus, help me to see as you see so that I might do as you call me to do. Could we make that our prayer, Lord Jesus? Help me to see as you see, so that I might do as you call me to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each one of our hearts and that we could see the ways that we're much more like the Pharisees than we maybe want to be or thought we were that we come before you and we've got things that we hold on to that are dear to us and they matter a lot. And, and it makes sense. If, if someone knew our story, it makes sense why it matters a lot to us, but it's also what can keep us from you. It's what can keep us from hearing you. It's what can keep us from responding to you and living in the way that you call us to live. And so, Lord Jesus, would you help us to see as you see so that we might do as you've called us to do. God, you have put us in this world as your ambassadors, as witnesses, as people that can testify to what Christ has done in our life. And so, Lord, to to be your people begins with seeing as you do. So, God, would you, in your graciousness, in your goodness, would you expose our lenses? Would you help us to repent of our filters? And would you lead us to a place where we embrace wholeheartedly your kingdom and a view of this world that may be very different from others around us in the society that we live in, but we believe it's the kingdom of God and it's beautiful and it's good and it's eternal. And as we enter into it, we will never regret those choices. So Jesus, help us to see as you see so that we might do as you call us to do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.